0: Hello and welcome to the Business of Show Business podcast with me your host Jamie Boddy unpacking the skills needed for the entertainment and creative industries and celebrating those already in them. And welcome to bonus week here on season one. This week I'm dropping two podcast episodes that were not previously announced. If you are listening in real time on Tuesday, May 12th, I dropped the first bonus episode of season one and it was with Kathy Reid from Industry Minds. We talk mental health in the arts and all the amazing work they do with their Industry Minds platform. I also talk about ways in which you can use social media to have a more positive online mental health experience and now it is friday may 15th and i'm dropping the second bonus podcast episode this week and it's with kane silver recently we went live on instagram with somewhat of a podcast inception as he also has a fantastic podcast called the ins and outs the ins and outs dives inside the minds of industry professionals and shows you the ins and outs of the entertainment industry if you head over to the Ins and Outs podcast, it is episode ninety. I'm going to give you now a very meaty teaser here, but do head over to his channel to hear the full episode. So let's dive in. What's up, dude? How are you? Not too bad, thank you. If you were to see the setup of my mic and everything right now, gosh, I don't—I don't move in case I get
1: buried. So there we go. Home, home studio, right? Yes. <laughs> This is my first time, well, when we first started lockdown, I was doing quite a few podcasts via Skype, and then I saw loads of people doing them on live, and I was like, that's actually kind of cool. So then, I was doing them on live, but I don't record the audio through, like, my proper equipment, I just rip the sound from the video, so the sound isn't as crisp or as clear, but the people I'm talking to haven't got their own, like, setup at home, you know what I mean, (laughs) to be able to do the same thing. Yeah, no, so
0: hopefully this will be okay. Fingers crossed, this, my internet can be a bit patchy, so if I um, freeze in a really grotesque picture, that is why.
1: That's okay, we'll get you stuck like mid-word, it would be fantastic. We can use that as the picture for the conversation. <laughs> How are you doing? How's, uh, how's COVID life for you?
0: Yeah, not bad. Um, I think... It took me a while to kind of get into the flow of it, but i 'm lucky that a certain percentage of what I do can be done online, so mm-hmm. I've managed to kind of shift that focus. I know a lot of performers right now are kind of thinking right, this is the new norm. how do I take what I do in real life online and hopefully make mm-hmm. make money doing it
1: well it's interesting you say that because i 'm um, a part of quite a few groups on Facebook L- normally like a lot like all the um the hustle and stuff like that but like uh, dance teacher ones and they all seem to be having this complete meltdown and it's obvious that a lot of them are probably middle-aged dance teachers. Which have never experienced social media world before, and probably they, all they've got is Facebook, and all I see them is them having a breakdown that they can't get any students, and they can't make any money, and their their students don't want to do their online classes for five pound a class. And I'm like, well, you've got the best people in the world teaching for free. You need to figure out a new way to market yourself and adapt to these times. Do you know what I mean? So I think I think the younger generation are adapting quite well to it. You know, the people that are used to social media already. But I think for dance schools or people who may not be so in tune with the modern world are really struggling.
0: Yeah, and I think there's also a thin line because I think, granted, um, money in the arts, there's obviously, there's not as much of it at the moment. However, I think some people... Are maybe pricing themselves incorrectly, so when we are out of COVID, they're not actually going to be able to make money because they're gonna be like, "Well, if I could do your, if I could do a four-hour workshop for two pound last month, why am I going to now pay you two hundred pound to do it in person?" So it's it's a very interesting um the waters are very interesting to
1: navigate at the moment. I think it is. I feel like performers aren't very good at um, pricing themselves in normal life, let alone now. <laughs> yeah, I think we don't have a great. Um, sense sense of like self-worth do we as performers
0: i think it's because we're always told what we're not good at and why we look in a mirror every day don't we for three years at college looking at who's better or what you're doing wrong so when it comes out to actually being like
1: buy my product buy me people are a little bit like i think we're just too reserved aren't we sometimes a hundred percent i i kind of pride myself now on thinking of myself as not kane the performer but kane the business and how i can go I look at the biggest business in the world and like Apple and Nike and all these other huge businesses that succeed and I go, how can I take what they do well and apply it to my career?
0: Oh, 100%. Like I think so many performers need to adapt that because I think when you know as a product where you can work, you can then fine-tune those jobs where Mm -hmm. you're like right these are the people hiring the skills i have where if and i think there's also a great power comes in the fact of you know what you're good at also highlights what you're not good at so then don't go to those auditions if you don't have those skills invest your time in the people that are buying you as a product and the auditions you are like successful in
1: yeah it'd be like me going to a musical theater audition and them going can you sing please
0: (laughs) i used to have one song putting on the ritz and it was always
1: like they're like can we have a rock pop and i'm like yeah putting on the ritz. And they're like
0: can we have a legit ballad i'm like putting on the ritz i literally just had one <laughs> song that i would just hey, sing in every
1: as long as you were confident enough to go this is what i'm doing they won't question it <laughs> so can you tell for my listeners a bit about yourself i've kind of looked I, I i've never i heard of you through rosina once before she said that you you know you started a podcast and i was like i don't know who this guy is because we live in very although it's uh, the entertainment industry i guess we're opposite ends of the spectrum of the entertainment industry. Um, so I kind of zipped through your website yesterday and a bit today. P.S. It looks fantastic. I've just made one this week. And then I looked at yours and I was like, oh, mine's not that good. I need to do more. No, so it yours st- is great. Yours is great. It kind of stressed me out a bit. But um, yeah, so you're a uh, bit of everything, right? You've been in musical theatre and now you do presenting.
0: Yeah, so um, I went to performers college. That's actually where I met um, Rosina. Um, and I've kind of, I never necessarily had a clear... Um, focus of I just have to do West End or commercial or whatnot. I kind of just wanted to do everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And I realised quite early on that I wanted to build a career and not just kind of have flashes in the pans of chasing one credit. So, yeah, I did um, Tokyo Disney, Royal Caribbean. Um, I did The Voice in Ireland. Um, I've just finished doing a new Netflix show called Bridgerton, which we were filming on and off for um, six months, which was great. But for five years... um, I've also been in arts marketing, so for two years I worked agency side and ran the socials for musicals like Matilda, Jersey Boys, Tina Turner and the Musical. Um, Then freelance for three years and then I retrained as a journalist. So I actually work a lot with The Stage, Broadway World, CNN. So I feel like I have a weird 360 look at the industry because obviously I've been in shows, marketed shows and done the press for shows and I think what I've really enjoyed is helping performers kind of realise oh, it's not just enough to, like, train for three years and that's it. There's so much more. Um Yes, yeah, so that's kind of me in a nutshell. And I have to ask you the same question, because obviously I've got listeners for my show, so it's like a yeah, weird podcast cool. inception, isn't it? So can you... Yeah, it is. Because I think we may have been at one or two odd auditions before you went stateside, but obviously there's so many people you never necessarily
1: chat to over one. So can you tell my listeners about you? Um, yeah, that feels like three lifetimes ago before I went to LA. Um, my background, I mean, I started dancing at, like, 14... Just straight away was like if I can do this for a job I saw this dancer Glenn Ball who did it for a job and he was my hero still is and I was like I want to I want to be like that guy. I want to get paid for this Um, And all I knew was the goal was to dance behind a singer and I would have done whatever it took to be the guy behind an artist on top of the pops and that was just kind of my go and you know, I joined like a, a dance group Started dancing, went to full-time education at 16, hated it with a passion every single second of it, did not enjoy, but kind of knew that this was the, I have to, well, I was told I had to get through that to make it. So I did a year's foundational, then another two years foundational, because I was really, really bad, Um, and just kind of got a scholarship at Millennium and I left after six weeks because I was just like this isn't for me like all they wanted me to be was musical theatre and I didn't have a care for it in my body at the time Um, and I just did whatever it took to get a job really I just stood outside Pineapple until I made friends with people at 19 took as many classes as I could hustled free classes like would say to the teachers I'll press play and pause on your music as long as I can be in the room with you you know I won't even take up any space I'll hide in the corner And just kind of that way, really. And through meeting people and networking with dancers who were already in the industry and doing really well, just kind of found my place. Booked my first, like, I did a job while I was in college and that kind of gave me the incentive not to continue with college. Um, But once I booked my first job out of college, I was like, I'm actually good at this. Do you know what I mean? And I found a niche for myself. There wasn't another white ginger guy. And I was like, oh, this is my role. And from there, just kind of... It just kind of, like a roller coaster. it all went so fastly, I started probably working at 20, like properly in London, and by the time I was 22 I was applying for my visa to the States, and I was there by 23, then moved home at 25, 26, and now I'm almost 30, it's just been like, it's gone so fast, you know? I think that's the thing, like, you hit the nail on the head. It's such
0: a wave, isn't it? And you have to learn to ride the ups and the downs of the wave because we, we're always saying yes, aren't we, to work, that when we actually get downtime, like now, during COVID, we have nothing but downtime, so we're having to force ourselves to, like, relax and not tear our hair out. So I think, it, yeah, it's learning to
1: ride that wave, isn't it? Well, and I feel like what dancers don't do, or performers, I should say, aren't very good at is downtime. I feel like we, we base ourselves work means when there's only a a paycheck coming in but the way I always envisioned it is for me every day is a work day because if I'm not getting paid for that day I'm figuring out a way to get paid for that day
0: yeah 100% and I think it took me a while to learn to implement uh, my own work hours because even though I was freelance I was like if I reply to an email at 11 p.m that client or that person will expect me to do that all the time and I think it's helped me to have my downtime, and I was like, you know what, I'm not going to work this Sunday. Like I said, I'm meeting my friends. That's important where, you know, like we always, I think we always get um, get distracted by shiny things, don't we, as performers? We're like, oh, it's another job. I don't know when my next one is. And then like four months later, you've not slept and you're like, this is not cool. Yeah,
1: I'm not good at that. I must say for me, the biggest struggle and now as a, you know, a more mature adult, especially as a dancer, I feel like I experienced a lot in such a short amount of time that I, I feel more mature than I really am or have experienced more than I maybe should have I feel like I really struggled with the balance aspect I really struggled at finding family time and finding social time for me especially when I moved to LA more than anything where I had no money so there was no partying and fun it was just everything was a hustle 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 and then coming back home made me realize how much of a I wasn't a human I was just a dancer do you know what I mean and I wish I could have made up more of that time of being a human than just being a performer or a dancer.
0: Yeah, completely. I think we as creatives attach our worth to our work. So when we aren't working, we sadly, our worth is slowly chipped away at. And it's you're only as good as your last job. But it's actually like, no, your skills are so much more. There's so much value in your skills outside of the audition room or on stage. But I think we are told to be so like narrow focused. Like you said, you miss those down times and being human and like, What we do is fantastic, but having now worked in the world of marketing and press, if I say, oh, I've danced on Britain's Got Talent, people are like, okay, cool, that's it. They're not like, oh, my God, whoa, we're in the dance world. They are. So that was quite humbling to be like, like, I would sometimes go to press events with someone um, that had just come back from covering, like, a massive awards ceremony in L.A. Or someone that used to be in, like, war journalism in Syria and now swapped more to, like, mainstream. And I was like, people clap me for a living and you've been shot
1: at. Like, this is insane. (laughs) A hundred percent. But don't you think that stems from, like, if you think back to college, maybe people who didn't go to college, if they disagree or agree, they can chime in. But for me, I remember being in college, they never, it it wasn't about Kane as a person, it was always about Kane as a dancer. And for those three years, it was drilled into me that I had to be the best dancer and every day I should be going home after college and stretching. Every day I should be going home and practicing the exercises from college. There was no, there was no time for me to be. They didn't ever want me to be Kane. They wanted me to be the dancer. And when I was at college, I really rebelled and I really was always Kane the person and not Kane the dancer. And then when I left and I found my own journey, that's when I implied that Kane the dancer has to take over and I sucked at being a person.
0: Yeah, and I think... Because colleges are... Obviously, colleges are great and they work well for some people, not for um, others, sorry. But I think we for them they've got to think they've got three years to turn you into someone that's a good credit to that college name so when you leave and say you train there they're like great and what actually some of the things get lost in translation of you as a human being and actually the fact the more multifaceted you are as an individual makes you so much more employable but we don't think of that we just think crap I didn't do the most turns or I can't sing the best or my legs don't go the highest
1: yeah well yeah that's true because now as a, a- an adult who's a mate, had a career in dance. You know, I had the opportunity to learn tap dance when I was in college, the one that I dropped out of. And now at 29 years old, I've picked up a pair of tap shoes and I'm trying to learn it and I regret not ever doing it. I never went to boys' ballet once in an entire year. And th- then it was because I was like, fuck this, this ain't for me, this isn't how I do it. And now I look back and go, man, I would have been so much better if I'd committed myself to those other things. So I think it's about it's about finding that balance. And I think, but I do think college is also struggle to find the balance of humane, humanity and training as well.
0: Oh yeah, completely, and I think what I find with um, my workshops when I work on more on personal branding is some colleges don't want to bring me in because so maybe it highlights what they don't teach. Yeah. Because obviously um, 20 years ago it was like you have someone from the West End, someone from commercial, blah blah, and that's the formula but it's changed so much and I don't know any performer that just does one thing to make an income now. No. Like, I don't think that's possible. Or the people that do one thing just to make an income, they probably want to do other things as well because they've got more, like, skills
1: and more passions they're not necessarily using if they're so Mm narrow-focused. I think it's, it's different between here and the States. I think when you're in the States, if you're... Say you're a dancer and you're with SAG and you work a lot or, you're like, I had a guy on the podcast, I think he's watching still, but, like, Eddie Morales, he... He's a working dancer, and he, he worked constantly. so I feel like for someone like that, you could make a living from just performing or just dancing. But in the UK, like even when you book like in inle- obviously I'm not talking commercial, as we call it, in quotations, commercial dance, you book a tour, you're not touring for a year straight. You know, you're touring for a few months at a time, and then you're back to the grind. Whereas in America, normally, if you book a tour with a a big artist, you're going to tour for a year year plus. And kind of the same as West End, if you book a West End tour, you're going to work for a year plus. But in my field, it was always the jobs were very short. And even a long job wasn't really a long job. You weren't making a year's money out of that job, very rarely.
0: Yeah, and no, no, um, you had um, Ricky on the other day and I did The Voice yeah. of Ireland with Ricky back in 2015 and that was one of my favourite jobs, but that was only six weeks. And then you almost don't have time to enjoy the fact you've done a good job because you have to think of what's next and how can I use that to get to the next step? It's quite hard. I was going to ask, in America, do you think also dancers and um, artists are different
1: mindset in America than the UK as well? Um... No, yes and no. Like, my relationship building out there was very different here because there's not many people in LA that are from LA. You know, they everyone's flying into this hub of entertainment to strive and make it and be the best of the best. You know, it's entertainment capital of the world. Like, you are with the best of the best and everyone is fighting for those high roles. So, I feel like out there they are a bit more hungry. I feel like there it's a bit more... Nice at first, but it's cutthroat when it needs to be compared to London. Like, my experience in London was the people I met and now were my friends were my friends. Whereas in LA, I found like when I got there, everyone was my friend because I got a visa and I was from the UK and I was different. And, you know, Brian Freeman gave you a visa. Oh my God. And then three months later, those people have all disappeared because I'm not offering anyone jobs and I'm unemployed for those three months as well. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's, you know, it is different, but out there I think they I don't think they're necessarily more talented on a, uh, as number for number, you know? Say there's a thousand fantastic humans there, super talented, there's a hundred here, but they're choosing out of 10,000 and we're only choosing out of a thousand. Do you know what I mean? I'd say it's quite even if you balanced it out, but I would say out there they're just more hungry. Yeah
0: and except when I worked for like Tokyo Disney and Royal Caribbean there's obviously a lot of Americans and I just think their mindset seems a bit more like great I'm in a job so I can use that money to pay for another class or get new headshots where well, I think in England I think we have such a this is quite a slap statement so I don't mean it for everyone but I think we, we go to college for three years and we think great that's it that's all I ever need to train and it's actually like yeah. no that's
1: like the stepping stones but you learn yeah. so much more when you're actually out there When I was So living in London When I first started I remember I had this joke With my friends That we called ourselves The professional dancers Who are still Training to be professional Like that was my little Inside joke with my friends I'd be like There's no other people That I do jobs with Or not many That are still training And taking class Whereas when I went to LA I'd be in Marty Gedalka's class, and then I'd look next to me, and I'd see Ivan Kamoyev and Natalie Gilmore, who had just been on a world tour with Justin Timberlake, and they're still in class. And I feel like in UK, it does happen more now than it used to. You know, I don't take class very often anymore. Like, I'm not in London anymore. But when I was there full-time, I remember I never used to see the people who were working, still training to be at the top of their game. Although they're in rehearsals, now I look back at it and I go, okay, they were rehearsing all week. So maybe they didn't want to use that free time to take class. Yeah, you know. Yeah. In LA, I did find a lot of the working dancers were still in class, you know? Yeah, God, it's such a
0: double-edged sword, isn't it? Because you you do need to be hungry, but then you need to switch off as well. So it's quite interesting hearing that, because I think everyone thinks the grass is always greener, so they think, right, oh, I want to go to America, with maybe not necessarily knowing what to expect, or they just see, like, so you think you can dance, or La La Land, or whatever it is, and they're like, yeah, let's go to America, and it will happen. I
1: think they take their training more seriously than we do, though. Like, if you think of how much... We pay, what, 33000 for three years dance training here. They probably spend that as a child before they even think about going to college, going to conventions for, for three years and they're 10 years old. You know, they're going to conventions every every two weeks and traveling the country to do monsters of hip hop and pulse. Obviously we don't have those facilities here. We have Can You Dance now, which is fantastic. But before you know before Can You Dance came around, we never had those opportunities. So I think that because they have all these things, that's maybe why they take it more seriously.
0: Yeah, no, completely. It's it's very interesting to hear because I think there was definitely a part when I first graduated that I was like, yeah, I'll go to the States and I think the older I got and the jobs I kept saying yes to jobs and it was great but I think now, obviously, I'm, I'm older than you. I'm 32. So I'm, a, I'm on a different career path than my auditioning days. But I actually booked a, um, a tour with an American company called Feld, who did Disney Live. And that gate crashed an audition when I was in Chicago. I was there on holiday. Found out about an audition from my friend when we was in a club one night. Went to audition the next day and just didn't speak for eight hours of the audition because I didn't know if they would hire an English person. So I was just like, Mm-hmm. Mm, mm. and it wasn't till the end and there was three guys left and they were like so tell us about yourself and I was like surprise I'm English (laughs) (laughs) and and luckily it it was a European tour so I was like yes it worked out but it was a very
1: interesting experience that's crazy isn't it funny the things that we do to make sure we try and get the job
0: Yeah it's if I like when I tell my friends who aren't performers like oh I went to an audition I cast in and they threw butters at me and then I went somewhere else and had to act like a sheep and then went to an audition and had to take my top off as soon as I walked in they're like that's like where's HR
1: And I was like we don't have one. (laughs) Yeah what's going on it it is it is bizarre it is madness I am my favorite one is I went when I was in I was so broke in LA like It was the biggest hustle of my entire life. And when you're on your own, that struggle feels even harder. Because I had friends there, but no family and stuff like that. So uh, I was just constantly on the equivalent of like spotlight. You know what I mean? Looking for jobs. And uh, I just applied for everything. And I got a response being like, yeah, come to this casting. Uh, They gave me the address. "Bring Bring swimwear. You have to dive in a pool. And I was like, I can dive in a pool. I can swim. This is easy. So I get to this casting. And I'd never driven before I moved to LA. So I, I, when I went there, I bought a car, read a book, drove it around the block a few times, took my test and passed. Like, because it's like a go-kart. The, the rule is don't crash and don't kill anyone. Like, so I passed. So I drove to this casting in downtown middle of nowhere. Like, it was the most random place. And as I was trying to park my car, I reversed and i hit the car which was parked behind me. I bumped it. And I was like oopsie and I looked and there was a woman in the car and she got out and she gave me the dirtiest look ever and I was like I'm so sorry and she just walked walked away and I was like oh crap so I pack all my head shops up get all my stuff and I walk into this casting which was like the back of a cheap rundown motel thing and it had a swimming pool with a diving board and there's about 60 blokes there in, in speedos, bathers you know and so you hand in your head so you sign in. I must have waited about forty-five minutes, pale and ginger in the sun, with no sun cream on, thinking, I'm about to burn here. Like this is this is a disaster waiting to happen. And we're going we're waiting around the corner and then as you kind of get closer to your turn to do your your audition, as you say. Uh, I can see the people what they're doing, and there's people doing like triple backflips into this swimming pool off this diving board, and I, all the all the brief said was dive in a pool, and I'm thinking, oh my. God goodness so i I watch everyone i get in they go okay so do your three dives so i do a normal dive i do a run and jump and dive and then i do like this kind of weird looking back dive thing and it was horrific the ugliest thing ever but you know i'm so broke i got nothing to lose so i climb out of the pool and the woman auditioning me was the one i crashed into and i looked at her and i went hi and she just gave me the dirtiest look and looked back at her thing and i was like oh, why did I come? (laughs) First of all, I can't dive. (laughs) And then I crash into the casting director, or whatever she was. It was like, brilliant. Oh, gosh. But that just goes
0: to show, like, you literally never know who anyone is. Like... When I, um, I used to work for Royal Caribbean, sometimes I'd help out at the auditions and I'd be sat registering people and people would be slagging off the audition. Like, I don't even want to be here, but my agent submitted me or I couldn't get a private slot, so I'm at the open. And then obviously I then take the forms inside the room and sit on the panel and then they'd, they'd walk in. I'd be like, don't you can't put that person on a, on a boat for nine months of another cast because they are a terrible human being.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've, I've probably, probably been that, that person, person to be fair.
0: I guess <laughs> yeah. you've got to learn, haven't you? But that, yeah, yeah, so.
1: well, that's the whole reason I started my podcast, is like I don't want people to make the same mistakes I did. I was a dickhead when I first started. I was talented, but I was a dick. Like, <laughs> but it took me a long time to learn that.
0: No, it, what, once I saw Rosina was on it, I then was like, right. And then obviously there's such an amazing back catalogue on your podcast. So I was like, oh, let's keep listening and listening. So there's, you've got some amazing people on here. The first well, I've had
1: amazing guests, but the first twenty are horrendous because it was like one microphone in the middle of a room with no no understanding of what I was doing. Pure freestyled it. Like this mic I'm using now is I never use, I haven't used this in probably over a year. But you know it's just it's a learning process for me. I, I'm kind of treating it like I treated dance when I first started. You know it was just a passion and just okay constantly try and make it better. And how do I make it better? I research on what's what makes the sound quality better, how to market it better. And then the better I've got at it, the kind of more brave I've been with approaching people to come on it. Whereas at first I was very much like, if I talk to my friends, I'm in a safe space. You know, like if it goes wrong, they'll understand. Or if I say the wrong thing, they'll understand. And now, like last week I had Marty Godelka on there who's like, before I ever knew who he was, realized that he's the reason I wanted to be a dancer, because he choreographed Justin Timberlake, and I had him on last week, so that was my first like super milestone, you know, and it's like now I'm like really approaching the people that I've really wanted on there for a very long time, like these are like, these are like my auditions now, my training's done, and I'm like now I'm in my audition phase, where I feel confident enough that I can talk to people where I might only get one chance, and I'm not afraid about it going wrong, Yeah, um, I want to
0: definitely touch on that some more because with a lot of my podcasts, I ask performers when they have a side passion and obviously taking the courage to pursue that because I think... When you tell someone you're maybe not going to go to that audition on that day, or you're going to do something else as well, how was it for you? Like, I know you're more so on the creative side, and you're teaching and everything. You are still performing, but maybe not auditioning as much. How was it for you when you finally made that decision? Right, I need to... I want to push this more. I want to get more into the teaching aspect. I want to produce
1: this podcast. How was it when you kind of had to make that switch? Um, When I came back from LA, I worked... Intensively for like two years straight. Like I was doing a Kylie. I was working with this young artist called Amani at the time, who's like, it's my favorite thing I've ever done. She's like my little sister. We kind of got to teach her how to be an artist. It was great, you know. It was it was I was very busy, and I did a gig with Anne Marie for Top of the Pops um, for Sean Niles, a very good friend who choreographed it, and it was one of my favorite gigs I've ever done. Him and Emma Welsh. I was with great dancers, and I was like, I'm a dude. Like this was the one. And we did Top of the Pops and I remember seeing my paycheck when it came in and thinking I've just danced on one of the biggest TV shows of the UK has ever offered. And I've made less than I would doing two days teaching, but I've done three days work for Top of the Pops. And for me, that was a really big turning point where I was like, I, not that I'm worth more than this, but I didn't feel like I was getting what I was worth then. Do you know what I mean? I was like, it's like people used to buy a house off top of the pops. <laughs> like you know, top of the pops used to pay you for the next two years on residuals. And I walked away. I believe for like two rehearsals in a show. I think it was like four hundred and something pounds. And I was like, what on earth is this? Like teaching at a college, I get more than half of that for a day. So it, that was my turning point. And my friend John Graham, who's I don't know if you know him. He's one of the, for me. He's dance god. Um, he was kind of like my mentor and like my big brother. And I remember seeing him always turn down dance jobs for teaching and I never understood why. And that was my turning point. I was like, yo, I'm never going to buy a property from doing three days work for 400 pound and paying for my own travel. And, you know, like it just didn't make sense. So that for me was a huge turning point. I've been teaching since I was 14. So I've always loved teaching. It's always been something I'm really good at. And I always knew that that I never had to really pursue it because it's something that I could always fall back on but I'm really good at breaking things down and finding different ways to deliver information not necessarily that I'm teaching the best moves in the world but I'm just good at getting the information across um and for me that was my that was my awakening where I was like this is dumb and then it uh, it happened that my one of my best friends Jamie was in the dream boys and they needed someone to learn the show in like two days and I was like I could do that I've seen the show I can learn that easy and I was like what's the money and they told me the money and I was like no brainer I've been dancing for Kylie Minogue for half the price and I could do this of course I'll do it you know so that was the turning point for me where it went from like I'm not pursuing auditions I'm not pursuing that and I've been doing the Dream Boys now for this is my fourth year I think yeah it's my fourth tour I joined halfway through one year but my side thing is teaching and then the podcast was just, I listened to so many about fitness and motivation and I tried finding ones on our industry and they all seemed, I found a few, there was some, but it was all talking about the how fantastic it is, which it is, but I don't think that's the message that we should be giving to students going... It's amazing and it's fantastic and it's brilliant and it's the best dream ever because I feel like they should learn how to get through the hard sides of stuff too and they should know the, the reality of what they're choosing because it is, it is fantastic. But to tell you that I've danced for some of the biggest artists in the world and I was still broke. <laughs> like you know, if you if you're the highest in a firm at Lloyd's Bank, you buy a house. If you're the highest, you know, if you're in the Premiership footballer, you buy four houses. If you're the highest category of a dancer in the country, you're still broke. <laughs> like you still can't really buy much. So that was like a, a awakening for me. Is like I need to use my experience to talk to people. So pursuing the podcast just came from that. Really, the understanding of dance wasn't financially supporting me the way I wanted it to. I had to adjust and make other things. And then, okay, I need to educate people on my story and inspire people with the connections I've made. The industry is fantastic, but however,
0: like, it is it's an industry. It's a business. And I think if anything COVID has taught us is that it can be taken away. You could have been the leading lady on the West End last week, but now you are like everyone else. And I think it's performers... I think not only give up, it's just like you see your skills on stage and then you're like, right, oh, what else can I do with that? There's nothing else, but there's so much other there's so many other avenues of work out there which you can do and sometimes you've got to do something to realize you don't want to do it. A massive thank you to Kane there and the Ins and Outs podcast. Do go over and check him out. And as I said, this is bonus week here on season one. So we had Kathy Reid and Industry Minds on at the beginning of the week and then Kane Silver and the Ins and Outs podcast at the end of the week. Do check them both out. Links to their social media and websites are in the show notes. There is still lots to come on season one of the Business of Show Business. So tune in every Tuesday for an episode and I'll speak to you then.